My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some content from the October edition of the journal. So I'm going to start with an interesting title. I've got 99 problems, but a phone ain't one. This is a really interesting read. Electronic health, that's e-health, is a broad term which encompasses electronic-supported processes and communication in healthcare with the potential to impact positively on multiple different areas, including medical record-keeping, clinical decision support, and coordination of care. It's relevant to many different healthcare settings. There's been a massive international expansion in mobile connectivity, and this leads to the potential to revolutionise access to healthcare in lower- and middle-income countries although this does require infrastructure and investment. In this issue, Coomer and colleagues report on two recent initiatives from Kenya, where there are almost 38 million mobile phone subscriptions. There's a population of 44 million. And mobile phone subscriptions form 99% of all internet subscriptions. The first is an attempt to create a scalable clinical decision support system supported by a global network of specialists, including many clinicians born in Kenya and now working overseas. The second effectively extracts digital information from paper-based records using low-cost and locally produced tools such as rubber stamps to improve adherence to clinical practice guidelines. These initiatives bring down the costs of remote consultations, and clinical audit and offer the potential for clinics in resource-limited settings to deliver high-quality care. It's a really interesting read. The challenges are relevant to all healthcare settings. The authors rightly make the case for continued and increased investment in initiatives that bridge academia, public and private sectors to deliver sustainable and scalable e-health and mobile health solutions. The second article relates to selecting children for CT following head injury. There are specific NICE guidelines in place for when to request a CT scan in a child who presents with a head injury, published in 2007, revised in 2014. Kemp and colleagues report uptake, influential variables and yield in children under 15 admitted for four hours or more following a head injury. That's 5,700 children over six months. CT scans were performed in 30%, with a higher diagnostic yield in infants than in children aged 1 to 14. Based on the 2007 guidance, only 40% of children who fulfilled at least one of the four NICE criteria had a CT head scan. These criteria are glasmacoma scale less than 15 for an infant or less than 14 for an older child, loss of consciousness, a dangerous mechanism of injury, and suspicion of non-accidental injury. Children who fulfilled NICE criteria were more likely to have a CT scan if admitted to a specialist centre or aged over three years. There was considerable variation between hospitals and regions. This has important implications. 
The low and variable compliance with guidance requires further consideration with the potential risk being of missing serious intracranial pathology, but also the overuse of specialist imaging in children who present with head injury. The authors discussed the more recent 2004 guidance, which includes a second tier of indicators which permit a four-hour observation followed by CT if the child deteriorates and may be more appropriate and consistent with the data presented. There's clearly more research needed to better inform the best investigative approach in children who present with head injury. The third article I'd like to cover relates to the clinical presentation of childhood leukaemia. Leukaemia is the most common cancer in childhood, accounting for a third of cases, with 450 new cases in the UK per year and 4,000 new cases per year in the USA. The presenting features are not always typical, and Clark has reviewed the literature. 33 studies, 3,084 children. This is a list, but it's an interesting list. So common features at presentation include hepatomegaly, 64%, splenomegaly, 61%, pallor, 54%, fever, 53%, bruising, 52%, recurrent infections, 49%, fatigue, 46%, limb pain, 43%, hepatosplenomegaly, 42%, Bruising, 42%. Lymphadenopathy, 41%, etc. Abdominal symptoms were more common than previously thought, with anorexia, stroke weight loss in 29%. Abdominal pain in 12% and distension in 11%. Mucosal bleeding was seen in 25%. So it's a really interesting data set, and for clinicians in practice, who will see leukaemia presenting from time to time, well worth working through. The authors discuss the potential implications. Many patients have multiple features at presentation. Features such as fever, pallor, and fatigue occur in many childhood illnesses. Others such as hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, lymphadenopathy, and petechiae are more specific and therefore useful as red flags. In essence, though, any child who presents with an unexplained illness, particularly if there are multiple clinical features, warrants a careful clinical examination, including abdominal palpation examined for lymphadenopathy and careful scrutiny of the skin, and active consideration as part of the diagnostic process of the possibility of leukaemia with blood films, bone marrows, and such like. There's an excellent company in editorial, emotively titled, When Should I Suspect Childhood Leukemia? Because obviously no one wants to miss or delay the diagnosis of that condition. The fourth article I'd like to cover is an update on carbohydrates and health. So this has received much media attention and has got public health and policy implications. In June 2015, the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition published their report on carbohydrates and health, which provided recommendations to the UK government on the population intakes of carbohydrates, sugar and fibres in the UK. 
This methodology, evidence base, findings and implications for children are reviewed in this issue. There's been no change in the recommendation that approximately 50% of energy intake should be derived from carbohydrate. There are specific recommendations relating to free sugars, which should be no more than 5% of energy intake, and sugar-sweetened beverages, which should be minimised in children and adults. The evidence for these recommendations is discussed in detail. The definition of fibre is reviewed and a pragmatic recommendation for intake made. In the context of childhood and adult obesity and the risk factors and consequences, the paper is essential reading, particularly the sections on current intake, dietary patterns and what needs to change. The final article I'd like to cover this month relates to family income and young adolescents' perceived social position associations with self-esteem and life satisfaction. It's really interesting to work through. Self-esteem and life satisfaction are important aspects of positive mental health in young people and both are socially distributed. It is likely that as children enter adolescence and gain independence, perceptions of their own social position will influence their mental health. Bannock and colleagues used data from the UK Millennium Cohort study to investigate the association of family income and young adolescents' social position to self-esteem and life satisfaction. The methodology, proportional odds-nods ratios and data are in the paper. In summary, the likelihood of greater self-esteem and life satisfaction increased with income and similarly, the risk of having poor self-esteem and life satisfaction was greater in those with the lowest income. The perceptions of young people were also important. Young people who perceived their families as poorer than their peers, rather than the same, had lower self-esteem and life satisfaction. This was also true of young people who perceived their families to be richer than their peers, who also had lower self-esteem and life satisfaction. This effect was independent of household income. It is of interest and challenging to see how we might impact on it, particularly as we're aware that inequalities in self-esteem and life satisfaction are likely to persist into adult life. My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for the full content of the articles discussed. Thanks for listening.